Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it was, is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart a person believes or with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for our study in Romans. We pray that you will guide us now. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So as we continue through Romans, we're, we, we find ourselves in, in these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. I think I want to spare us the review for time's sake because I ran a little short last service. But, but, but all of Romans, pretty much uh, the chapters 1 through 8, starts out with all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you want to be right with God, it's by faith. The idea that our relationship with God comes through faith alone is not a new new idea and he goes back to abraham and he shows that abraham's righteousness was credited to him through faith then in chapter five paul begins to explain the 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 freedom the the peace that we have being justified in christ through faith that there's something different there there's a peace we're no longer at war with god he explains the great truths that come uh, through this new relationship Going into chapter 6 and 7, he begins to sort of give warning. Now that you're in Christ, don't slip back into your old nature. I sort of, as I've gone through this study, my views are kind of maybe coming clearer. But it seems to me that Romans chapter 6 paints the picture of the Gentile. that They're slipping back to their old nature, would be slipping back into a license to do whatever you want, to live according to the flesh. And so Paul begins Romans chapter six with this idea of what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Are, are, are we to go back to our old life? Because if God is so gracious, then are we doing him a favor by sinning more? Because if we sin more, it increases grace. And Paul says, that's foolish thinking. Don't do that. He sets you free. You're no longer in bondage to sin. Then as we get into Romans chapter seven, the first few verses there, I believe he addresses the Jew. He says, don't slip back into your old nature of, of the law and thinking that you can create your own righteousness. And when he hits on this point, Paul hits on a matter that's very personal with him, something that he felt closely and near and dear to his heart. And really the last probably uh, three quarters of or three quarters of Romans chapter seven 
We see Paul say, I, I, I. And he shares of his life seeking to attain the righteousness found in the law. But as he seeks to obey the law, all the law does is highlight the sin in his heart and draw it out of him. That he, all he can do is he now covets and desires things. And the things that he, he knows he wants to do, that he agrees with the law, he finds that he doesn't do them. And he ends with, oh, wretched man am I. And where's our hope? And we get into Romans chapter 8, really the, the apple of Romans, this beautiful chapter for Jew and Gentile. Our hope is found in the Lord, that the Spirit comes to intervene on our behalf in our prayers that we're told that whatever you're going through, that God is working all things for good. That you, If you're having a rough time in your life, know he's working it to refine you. Finally, the chapter culminates with Paul saying that, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It's beautiful. And as we get into Romans chapter 9, Paul's heart begins uh, to, to hurt for his fellow Israelites. Because what had happened in the church in Rome, these group of believers that Paul had never met, that weren't established by any apostle, they, this group of believers found themselves, their origins, to Pentecost in Jerusalem. They were there for Pentecost to celebrate. The Spirit came. They hear the news of the Messiah. They believe. And this group of believers heads back to Rome to start the church. And as the church grew there, predominantly Jewish began to allowed gentiles within so it was a a christian church made up of jews and gentiles claudius was on the throne during this time as the jewish believers were reaching out to their non-believing jewish brothers and sisters tension arose claudius didn't like this in his city and he eventually kicked all of the jews out of rome as the jews are gone it it created this vacuum of gentile believers that they would they were flourishing that they were growing in a thought that is still around today called replacement theology, which says that, that God has replaced Israel with the church, that all of the promises and covenants no longer belong to Israel. They, they belong to the Gentiles. And so Paul begins to address this. And the reason he's addressing it is because these tension, these beliefs are, are highlighting. They're, they're growing more severe within the body because Claudius was ultimately poisoned. When he was killed, Nero came to power. Nero allowed the Jews to come back to Rome. And so now you have a, a, a church body of believers in Christ that's predominantly Gentile. And now the Jews are in the minority. And Paul's like dealing with this tension between these two groups, trying to spare the unity of the body. How do Jew and Gentile believers get along? There are different issues dealt with in Romans than any of his other books. And Paul begins in chapter 9 by addressing his heart for his Jewish people, that he loves them, that, that he would go as, to far, as far as giving up his own salvation, that he would go to hell if it meant that his brothers and sisters from Israel would accept Christ as their Messiah. But that's not something that can be done. Paul begins the first part of Romans chapter 9, verse 6, and he basically starts to explain that, that the Israel of God, God, when he sees Israel, doesn't see what we see. In today's terms, we see it politically, geographically, or nationally or DNA-wise, that you're a descendant of Israel, uh, who is Jacob, that you're Jewish by, by blood, not necessarily by religion or belief system, if that makes sense. Well, there was no nation of Israel during the time of Paul's writing. And there was this understanding that if you were Jewish, if you were a, a descendant of Jacob or Abraham, you were a Jew. All of the promises, regardless of what you did or believed, you were special because you were a part of Israel, God's chosen people. And so Paul begins by saying, not all Israel is Israel in God's eyes. That there's always been this remnant of people who walked and operated by faith. And those within Israel who operated by faith, that's God's Israel. And there's some tension in my mind. I, I, I'm going I'm to get there later because these chapters, there's some rough edges. And I, I'm not going to attempt to smooth them out to give me certainty. I'm okay with tension. I'm okay with rough edges. But Paul begins to show that God is sovereign. That he makes choices, that, that he chose Israel from amongst all of the nations, not because they'd done anything, 
but because it was his choice. Then he shows from Jacob and, and Esau that while they were in the womb, God chose Jacob over Esau. Not that they'd done anything right or wrong, but God selected it, showing his sovereignty. I don't believe that this has anything to do with salvation in these chapters. He's showing that God has selected certain people, individuals for certain purposes. Not that they were special, not that they'd done anything great, but simply because God's in control. And last week I shared, I really don't like that. I, I pushed back. On God's sovereignty, if I'm honest with myself, because I like my own freedom. I like my own autonomy. I want to make my own plans. I'm an American. I want to pull myself up by the bootstraps and do whatever it is I set my eyes out to do. And we tend to resist the sovereignty of God because we don't trust him. And in dealing with the sovereignty of God, we have to remember who God is. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. He's all-knowing. He's, he knows everything. And ultimately, for me, in, in, in the sovereignty of God, where we ended last week, sort of, I shared with my own life, well, if God's making all these choices, it's just not fair that I was raised in this abusive home, that I had to testify against my mom. It's not fair that all of this happened to me. And so my clarity sort of happened in understanding Acts chapter 17, this this picture when when Paul stands before all of the theologians in Greece. And he says, I want to talk about this unknown God that you guys worship. This God created all things, all people from one uh, couple, Adam and Eve. And then as people came, it was by no accident that every person has been placed in their geographical location in the time in history in which they exist by God's plan so that they might grope for God And find him because he's not far from each one of us. And so in understanding my life, I've come with to great peace, understanding that I'm totally hard headed. And so when I look at my life, I recognize that the things that happened, God has allowed because it's what I needed to know God. And in my stubbornness, I've been broken. But I know that God's good, that he's loving, that he wants all people to come to know him as savior. And Paul, from the sovereignty of God, quotes some of the old prophets. He goes to Hosea, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, just because I think it's such a hilarious story. So here's this godly prophet, Hosea, who's single. Almost every single guy is praying for a wife, regardless of what they say. God says, brother, I got a wife for you. You're going to marry this girl, Gomer. Your parents aren't going to be happy. Oh, why's that? Well, this is me improvising. Oh, because she's a prostitute. But I want you to marry her and I want you to love her. And so Hosea does. They have a child. Then they have two more children. But the next two children are not from Hosea. She went back to her old business and produced some children. And God uses this illustration of his prophet not to tell a message, but to tell a message. But he's not using the prophet to tell the story. He's saying, Israel, as Gomer is with Hosea is how you are with me. And he loves his children. He loves his wife, even though she's forsaken him. And I love you. And those that you are descended of you, speaking of the Gentiles, I'm going to call them my beloved also. And so Paul's telling the story of Hosea like, listen, God in the prophets mentions the Gentiles that they're going to come in. We've missed it. We've sort of alienated ourselves from the world we think that we're better than everybody else we think that we're special and and we're entitled to salvation because we're jewish and many jewish people today think that they're saved and good with god simply because they're jewish and so paul's pushing back on this then he quotes from isaiah as he ends last week and he says listen we would have nothing we would be like sodom and gomorrah Had it not been for God's graciousness, the only thing that we have to boast in is his graciousness to us. And as we get into verse 30, the really the divide, we we need to remember that the the chapters and verses are not put there by God. They were put there by a French guy who I'm very thankful for, but they don't always correspond with the flow of thought. And so in verse 30 of chapter nine, Paul shifts his thought and he asks the question, what should we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, 
pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? This is the problem that Paul sees. You have the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. Very few of us who grew up following the Old Testament, doing all of the commands, being obedient to the things of, that God has revealed. Most of us are Gentiles. Me in particular, I won't speak about you, but I, I kind of, I mean, I was sort of raised in the Catholic Church, but I can't blame the Catholic Church on anything. It's not fair to them. I was a total rebel. I did my own things. I was drinking, getting tattooed, living the wild life, not pursuing God at all. Yet, in the midst of all of that, I, Jesus found me, got my attention, said, Gunner, wake up, probably a million times. And eventually, I believed. And then the righteousness of God came upon me, not because I was seeking it or trying to please God, but because of God's love. And Paul says, takes that sort of idea that these Gentiles were not pursuing after God. They were not seeking righteousness. Yet where they ended up is in righteousness. But the Jews, having the Old Testament, the covenants, the, the, God's giving them revelation to the world about his plan. They followed after a righteousness. Look what it says uh, in verse 31. But Israel pursuing it doesn't say the law. It says a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. So they doing all of their religious things, all of their works that did not get them to where the Gentiles ended up. Paul asked the question, why? Why are there so many Gentiles in the church? Look at today. How many Jews are in the church, the Christian church at large? Very, very, very few it's predominantly Gentiles. And Christianity isn't like its own independent thing. We're, we come from Jewish roots. Everything about us is from, I don't want to say Judaism because Judaism doesn't necessarily equate the Old Testament. But the truths found in the Old Testament, the, the truth of Christ in the Christian church, all of this is born out of the Old Testament. So it would make sense that the church at large would be Jewish and the Gentiles would be the smaller portion. But it's not that way. And look what Paul says, verse 32, why? Because they, that's Israel, they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And God had said all of this stuff in the Old Testament. And it's never been about works. Don't get it in your minds that in the Old Testament, it was a system of works. If you obeyed the law, if you did that, then you entered into heaven, that you were good with God. It's always been by faith. Paul's already made this point in Romans chapter 4 concerning uh, Abraham. But Israel, the Jewish people, the followers of God, they'd taken everything that God had said and it had become an external thing, a system of I do this, then God owes me that. They were not operating in faith, trusting God and doing these things born out. Now, that wasn't all of them. There was always a remnant as he started out in Romans 9. There were Jewish people who lived out the commands of God by faith, which Paul refers to as sort of the true Israel. And then he continues here. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now notice that last phrase. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. With your eyes, skim over to the next chapter, verse 11. Notice in verse 11, he quotes again this same verse. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So when I see this, suddenly uh, my, my warning lights or something important or something significant is happening here. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, your Bible should have notes or have this print in bold indicating that he's quoting from the Old Testament. So he quotes from the same passage and he sort of bookends it or, you know, puts the slices of bread and the and in between is the sort of the, the meat of the sandwich, the, the fillings. But what's so important about this passage? What's he quoting from? If he quotes from it twice, what was said? And if you look in your notes or you do your homework to figure out how you find out what he's quoting from, you'll come to see that he's quoting from Isaiah 28. Uh, 
And if you'll turn with me back to Isaiah, don't lose your spot in Romans, but back in Isaiah 28, we, we look at the greater context of what he's quoting from. Now, remember, Isaiah is this great prophet, uh, very long book, very significant in the prophecy that was foretold. It always strikes me that the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered uh, in Qumran in southern Israel, and 47, I think, if my day, some people can nod or shake, I don't know. I get dates all backwards, but 1947, I'm getting at least one nod. 1947, uh, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they discovered of all of the books of the Old Testament, the one that was there in its entirety was Isaiah. They can date these writings to pre-Christ, years before Christ came on scene. Yet Isaiah was there, and it's not what they found that was amazing. It's what they didn't find that is amazing. They found no mistakes. There was absolutely no contamination in our modern text of Isaiah compared to the Old Testament text of Isaiah that they were using, which is significant because, because people... Uh, we're saying skeptics, oh, Isaiah 53 can't be true. It has such precision and such accuracy that it had to have been written following the execution of Christ. And if we look through the New Testament, Isaiah is quoted so much. And in Romans 9 through 11, this, this, this portion to Israel, he goes to Isaiah so much. And this one part that he quotes in Isaiah 28 Verse, where are we at here? 14 through 18 is where we're going to look at. We read, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made a pact, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Now, the bigger picture of Isaiah at this time of history, when Isaiah is writing, the northern kingdom had been taken captivity and fallen. Isaiah was warning Israel, the southern portion, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, I believe. I think I'm bad with names, but the southern, definitely Judah. He warns them. God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. And in 586 BC, it came true. They were taken into captivity. Uh, Israel did not exist until it was established in modern history. And so there's this warning. But notice the warning. He says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers. So when I hear that, I think I, I naturally think, oh, this is the non-religious people. The scoffers are the religious people. These are the people who are ruling Israel. The, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of the religious ones who were entrusted to protecting God's word and sharing it with the people. They're the ones getting scolded here. Say, so you've made this pact, this, this idea that they think when God's wrath comes, that they're chosen, that they're special. And as the wrath of God comes, they're going to be on the sidelines and go, ooh, that's a bad storm. That's really bad. Good thing we're God's chosen people. He goes on to say, therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it. Will not be disturbed. So he describes the stone. I don't know about you. But all of us. I'm not going to do a show of hands. Most of us at night pitch black. Some of us. In the daytime. We tend to trip over stuff. You can be walking along. And it's like boom. Fall flat on your face. And whenever that happens. It's like the most embarrassing thing. Isn't it? Normally, the first thing I do when I fall flat on my face is I get up right away. Anybody see that? Good. Nobody saw it. And his stars can be ringing. But so he paints this picture that he's that God is going to take this stone and he's going to place it there. And those that are going by will trip over it. There are two options. You can trip over it or you can believe in it. Now, this passage is significant. So Paul quotes it here in Romans. He kind of bookends it. This is also quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 4. We're not going to go there, but in Acts chapter 4, 
verses 8 through 12, Peter standing before the Sanhedrin. He'd been, he'd been arrested. He was being questioned for the things he was teaching, for, for healing that had happened. And they basically want to silence him. And Peter quotes from this passage in Isaiah. And he basically looks at him, points his finger at him. The same guy who weeks before denied knowing Jesus three times. Yet he looks at him. He says, you guys killed Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is by his name that you must be saved. There's no other way. This boldness in Acts chapter 4. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul again quotes from this, word, this, this passage in Isaiah pointing to Christ. Same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. This is a significant passage. And so as we go back to Romans and we look at this passage. In Romans chapter 9 verse 32, he says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They're not living the law by faith. They were doing it by works. And he says, they, Israel... The Jewish followers, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The Messiah had come. They rejected him. They fell right over him onto their face. They fell. They stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is beautiful. Paul's making the case in this section, dealing with Israel in the present time, that there's no distinction. In some ways, looking so far, if we're following chapters 9 and 10, really through the end of 10, say, Paul, I thought you were trying to make the case that that God hasn't replaced Israel with the church because he's making a really good case so far that the church has replaced Israel. But then we get to chapter 11, but we're not there yet. Because he's going to say God's not done. But at this present time, Israel and its stubbornness, they need to deal with Jesus. They always need to deal with Jesus. And he says it's a stumbling stone. I'm all for, you know, in the churches today, there's a a big, you know, the seeker-friendly church. Most people scoff at this. Well, seeker-friendly church. Uh, It depends on how you define it. Because some people would say you're seeker-friendly if you're trying to be hospitable. Like we have coffee and snacks out there. Oh, you're being seeker friendly. You're just trying to make it easy for people to come to church. Most people complain my coffee's too strong. Not me, though. I like it strong. You can always water down coffee. That's a different subject. Oh, you run the air conditioning in here. Well, some people complain about that, too. 29 degrees is the perfect temperature as far as I'm concerned in this church, so I'm compromising. Oh, you're just trying to make it seeker friendly. No, we're being hospitable. You have comfortable chairs. Well, I'm long-winded. We want people to be comfortable. Well, people in Africa sit in benches. You're being seeker-friendly. There's a fine line between seeker-friendly. We, we want to remove all barriers. See, I don't care what you dress like. I don't care what you look like. I don't, I don't care if you tuck in your shirt. I don't care if you, if you comb your hair. We care if you brush your teeth, but that's a different issue. That's, you know, that's just being hospitable to other people. You know, that's a joke. But the one thing we're not going to take away is who's Jesus? Is Jesus the only way to God? The Bible says yes. That is something we will not remove. Do you think that's a stumbling block? It is, but it's the best stumbling block that you can possibly have. Unfortunately, people put other stumbling blocks there. What kind of music do you listen to? What translation of the Bible do you read? Why do you dress like that? Why do you comb your hair or not comb your hair that certain way? Why do you listen to that kind of music? That kind of music can't, that's not, these are all stumbling blocks that are of no significance. There's one stumbling block that matters and that's who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. He is the only way. And if you trust in him, you will not be disappointed. And then Paul goes into chapter 10, verse one, which was just continuing his flow of thought. For he says, brethren, my heart's desire. (laughs) Brethren, he's speaking to his fellow believers in christ but then he's going to talk about his other brethren who are his his fellow countrymen brethren those of you who have trusted in christ jews and gentiles my heart's desire and my prayer to god for them that's israel non-believing israelites is for their salvation for i testify about them that they have a zeal for god just pause there paul's not bashing them 
It's funny when we talk about or when the evangelical church talks about Catholicism, I can totally talk out of both sides of my mouth. See, to, to my to my fellow Catholic people. I can be very hard on them because I love them because I was raised Catholic. I, I, I recognize that there, there are points that fall short, but then I see the evangelical church that will sometimes just bash Catholics with a blanket statement. So stop guys. You don't like, what are you talking about? I, I, I really think that Catholics make great Christians. <laughs> Once they like, there's an understanding. And I love here when Paul talks about Israel, he's not bashing them. I, I, I resonate like the thing that strikes me is Catholicism, but I wasn't raised anything else. But people I know that came out of you fill in the blank. There's a, there's an understanding of what they're in. And Paul says they have a zeal for God. But Paul talked about a zeal. We Christian, we love grace. We love the idea that it's just about faith. But for those of us who know Christ, I asked you if, if, the 613 commands were laid out before us to follow. Would you be willing? I don't know. Do you, uh, the, I don't want to get too far ahead, but the New Testament actually has, there's a whole lot. The commands are a little bit harder in some ways. But Paul says there's a zeal. And, and their zeal is just not for, like, in general, it's for God. People, people always make fun of Paul, like, oh, even Paul came to Christ or whatever. Like, uh, Paul loved God. He had a zeal for God. He was misguided. He didn't have knowledge. Look at what it says. A zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. That's why here at Valley Baptist Church, we take so strongly the preaching of the Bible. Because it's not about my opinion. I I love when Ben preached. You know, when I was on vacation, he had three weeks. And somebody came up to me and asked a question. I'm like, oh, I love questions. And Ben's like, people here come up with questions a lot. You say something, they're going to question you on it. And it's like, absolutely, because my opinion and $2 will almost get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And my opinion means nothing. What matters is this. I make mistakes. Guys, I have so much stuff flowing through my head right now. Like I've studied so much and I have to filter out what to say or what not to say. I'm talking about whether you should comb your hair or not comb your hair. Like the, the stuff that's in my brain, sometimes I can be thinking something but something else comes out of my mouth. I listen to the recordings. I'm like, I said, what? That's not what I, I was wrong. And I knew I was right in my mind, but what came out was wrong. I'm not the one in authority here. The Bible is. And we need to be careful that, because it's so easy to get off track. And so when we talk about Judaism, we always reference a, there's 613 commands. I'm just kind of impressed with myself that I know that there's 613 commands. I didn't count them. And I've never backed up. I just, people say there's 613 commands. And we think, oh, they were just following those and they got off course. But see, rabbis came in and teachers of the law. And then they have their interpretation of the law, which became their yoke. And so they would say, uh, there's 613 commands and you get a rabbi that comes in and they can give a bunch of instructions. And so you might come up with thousands of rules. I have, you go to Israel today. One of the funniest things, I mean, I don't know if it's funny. The elevator, there's a Sabbath elevator. Don't take it ever. I thought it was like faster or something, but you, you don't press the buttons. It's like a little kid with like an elf. You know how he did all of the lights on the buttons? It just goes every single floor, all the way up, all the way down. You only make that mistake once. You go into your room. You, you can pre-program or it's, maybe it happens automatically. Oh, I want to wake up at 6 a.m. So what they do is they must plug it into the computer. So all your lights come on, your TV comes on, everything comes on as if you turned it on. But you didn't because why? The head rabbi says that would be work. Now, it's okay if you want to climb the the 12 flights of stairs to your room. That's not work. But pushing the button, that's work. So we're not going to press the button. It's easy to laugh, but we do the same thing. We, We take our convictions, our silly convictions about things, which convictions are good. And we start projecting them on other people. And you get off course. And what happens is a zeal for God, not in accordance with knowledge. Our convictions must be guided by truth. That's why the word of God is important. 
I mean, that's not why it is, but that's why it's important to keep it at the center. Okay, where are we at? So he, he defends them. He, he says they have a zeal for God that uh, really I wish that we had. But they're seeking for not knowing about God's righteousness, verse 3. See, now Paul suddenly says they're going down. They don't know about the righteousness of God. This was Paul. Paul believed that he was sinless before God. He thought that he obeyed everything perfectly. Then what happened? On that road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. And when Jesus appeared to him, everything changed. When people encounter God in the scripture, what do they do? They fall flat on their face in fear. And they say, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. Depart from me. Isaiah did it. Peter fishing all night, not catch. Well, fi- yeah, fishing. He didn't catch anything, but he was out fishing. He's a fisherman. And what does Jesus say? Go out, it's light. Cast your net out over there. Peter says, are you kidding me? I'm the fish. You're the rabbi. Why don't you stay in your vocation? I'll stay in mine. But because you're the rabbi, I'll do what you say. So he says, boys, I'm pretty sure he was on the shore. He says, boys, cast the nets out again. And what happened? All of the fish came in. What did Peter say? He, it wasn't about the fish. It was about he knew fish. And this was a divine act. And Jesus was God. And he falls down. He says, get away from me. Get apart. I can't be in your presence because I'm sinful. Would we see the righteousness of God? That's the true standard. And he says, they don't know God's righteousness. They don't know the true standard. They're measuring themselves against other people, which is a dangerous road to go down. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is fascinating. This is, this is almost where my, my, my brain seizes. Christ is the end. We want to produce our own righteousness. But Paul, in talking about righteousness... He, he, if anybody had any righteousness, anything they could boast in, he says, I far more. He gives his whole pedigree, everything. Then he gets in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 and verse 11. He talks about all of his credentials, his religious credentials, his, his righteousness. And the New American Standard, which is so proud of itself for being word for word literal, which it is. It tones down this section. And he says, all of these things are dung, which we in Valley Center kind of get it. And, and, and I listened to this, one of the guys teaching that I've been listening to on Romans. Cute little British old man, kind of looks like he's from, like the actual guy from Kentucky Fried Chicken. Like very soft-spoken. Colonel Sanders, yeah. But it's not Colonel Sanders, this is a different guy. And uh, he's speaking on that verse. And he starts apologizing. He says, I'm, I want to apologize for the crudeness in which I'm going to talk, but I need to talk in biblical language. And he used a word you're not supposed to use in church. And he used a different word for dung, which we wouldn't say in Christian circles. And I'm not going to say it here because you're not allowed to say that word in church, and I don't want to get in trouble. But he said it twice. I paused the tape, and I said, Anna, you've got to come in here and listen to this cute little old English guy. And she's like, what? And I press it and she's like, oh man. Well, that's what it says. And then he goes on to describe our righteousness. And he, he describes a little boy who had gone poop in the potty. And he takes his potty and he walks up to the daddy. He said, look, dad, look at my poop. Look what I've made. And he says, that's what we do to God. When we start bringing our righteousness before him, we have nothing to offer. If you go to Isaiah 64 6 speaking of our own righteousness he describes our own righteousness as a used menstrual rag which this is foul but it's what the bible uses to describe our righteousness we work we try we do all of this stuff and we're told it's of no value and jesus says In verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we sang a song today with these words. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's beautiful. It makes no sense to me. The Bible makes it very clear that I have no righteousness of my own. None. Zero. I bring nothing to the table. But then, throughout the scripture, I'm told that through faith, God credits my account with his righteousness. Makes no sense to me. None. I don't get it. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, He made him, that's the Father made the Son, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we're told that by faith when we come to believe and that we're justified, it's not that we bring any righteousness. It's that God says, here's my righteousness. It's now credited to your account through faith. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. My mind is boggled over it. And going back to Romans, he says, Christ is the end of the law. Then verses 5 through 7, he goes to quote Moses. The, the, the first verse here, in verse 5, it says, For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness based on the law shall live by a righteousness. He basically saying, if you're going to live by that standard where you think that you bring your own righteousness to the table before God, not that it was ever intended that way, but if you think that if you obey the law perfectly and that you could get into heaven, that's great. But he says you're going to be judged by that same standard. James in chapter 2 verse 10 says, he who lives by the law, if he fails at just one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Most of us are all guilty of the law right now. I'm pretty sure I have a mixed fiber shirt on. If not, I'm sure my pants might be mixed fiber. I don't know. Certainly my socks are. I'm not talking about my underwear in church. But, but I'm guilty somewhere of mixed fiber. And if you're guilty of mixed fiber, you're guilty of the whole law. Like, I haven't kept the whole law. And he says this from Moses, for the, uh, verse 7, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Verses 6 and 7, and these Moses, what's he saying? That you can't go up, that's to bring Christ down, or you can't go to the abyss, that's to bring Christ up, and he's already up. And I'm like, Paul, what are you talking about? Every Jewish person would know exactly what he's talking about. I'm wrestling with this all week. There are no commentators that give any good explanation about this. Then this morning, I'm up early for me. Some of you might not be so early, but I was up a good hour and a half before I normally wake up. And where he pulls this from, the light bulb came on this morning. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And so if we go over to Deuteronomy chapter 30, I want you to go over there. It's significant. And I think there'll be clarity. And we're towards the end of everything, so don't, don't be worried. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30... Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. The people had been wandering and wandering and wandering. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Moses would never go. Moses is grandfather, great-grandfather. They were all going to pass away. The new generation was going to enter into the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3, he begins giving some final instructions to them. The things that parents say to children, children often don't listen. It's like, Listen, I've learned the hard way. Follow my advice. Do this. And before we get into chapter 30, I just, free of charge, highlight this verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things reveal belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. This is the secret for how we, for me at least, how I reconcile like the sovereignty of God and my free choice, they don't make sense together. I'm not God. So I believe them both to be true. And because of this, I can move on. The secret things belong to the Lord. He hasn't chosen to reveal this to me. And when I get to heaven, I might ask him, but I probably will be more blown away with his presence to be asking silly theological questions that I have today. So then as we get into chapter 30, 
we see that God begins to show or Moses begins to tell you're going to enter into the promised land. As they they go over into the promised land, uh, we'll start at verse six. Moses says, moreover, the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul so that you may live. Now, if you've been paying attention, uh, there might be one of you here. And it's only because you're at the first service that, you know, this, this sounds familiar. Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter two, verse four, in this section where he's showing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's, there's, there's good sinners and there's bad sinners and there's religious sinners. And he starts talking about circumcision and he says, true circumcision isn't of the flesh. It's of the heart. This is in the old Testament. It's always been that way, that God does a work in the heart. It's not a religious external act. And Moses tells them, the Lord will circumcise your heart that you could follow him, that you would love him, that you would seek him, that you may live. He goes down and he he begins to say, uh, well, let's just read here. Uh, Verse nine. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in your the produce of your ground of the ground of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and soul. For this commandment, this is where I'm getting at. This is this, this is what Paul's going to quote from in Romans, verse 11. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us or to, or to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea. The sea was viewed as Hades, as death. It was a scary place that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to make us hear it that we may observe it so as they're going moses is saying you don't need to go to heaven you don't need to go across the sea you understand god has revealed what you need to know to follow him verse 14 but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it as we go back to romans as we as we finish up with these last few verses we're going to notice a change between your mouth or in your heart. And here we see it in Deuteronomy, in your mouth and in your heart, and you may observe it. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. He goes on to say, if you follow God, God's revealed everything that you need to follow him. You can do it. You don't need extra revelation. You don't need to go down to death. To death. You can turn back to Romans now. I'm speeding up. I'm getting hungry. He quotes from Moses. He said, just as Moses said, you don't need to go up. That's to bring Christ down. Christ has already come. He's already revealed himself. You don't need to go down to Hades. He's already risen from the dead. We have everything we need to know about the Messiah. He has come. You have a choice. Verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. He's going to say this two more times. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I don't have time. I'm out of time to, 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 to talk more about this. This is Romans Roads. I, I halfway think that we use this out of context. Because of what I see in the scripture all the way through Acts, all the way through Ephesians, all the way through all of these important New Testament books, how are you saved? By belief. You hear the gospel that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. And when you believe in that, you're sealed. Now, I don't have the answer. I can't wrap this, well, I can't wrap this up in a neat bow, but I think that there's something peculiarly uh, Jewish about this passage which I'm still wrestling with because I struggled with, well, if you believe in your heart and then you confess, that's how you're saying. So you need to confess. So I only believed I haven't, I haven't confessed anything to anybody. So I'm not saved. 
So do I just need to say it once? Do I need to say it to a bunch of These are just into my mind, which I'm sorry, guys. But, but I think Paul, had some, to the Jewish person, to, def, to profess Jesus as the Messiah was huge. Remember, how did he begin? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Do you think Paul could have struggled with um, being ashamed of the gospel? Of course. He had to turn his back on everything. But he says here, if you believe, you'll be saved. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I don't know about you, but I gave my life to Christ in 96, and I have absolutely no regrets, no remorse. I've, I've never been disappointed in what God has done through Jesus in my life. I have nothing but gratitude for what he's done, the work, because I don't deserve any of it. He goes on to say, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I have a whole lot more to say next week. Instead of covering it all, I've decided to break these three verses off, 13 through 15, to answer the question, what about the person in the jungle somewhere in the Amazon who's never heard about Jesus? What about them? They need Jesus if they're going to be saved. And we're going to take all next week to kind of unpack that and help us to understand because that's why missions is so important. That's why we take our missionaries so important. But while we're ending and we're done now, whoever will call on the Lord will be saved. I love the simplicity of the gospel. That's the beauty of it. It makes no sense to us. Our economy says if you want something Earn it, pay for it, do something. If you give me a gift for my birthday, that means I'm obligated to give you a gift for your birthday. (laughs) But the Bible says he's done it all. There's nothing we can do. It's a gift. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I guarantee you he won't disappoint you. Doesn't mean your life will be easy. Doesn't mean you won't face trials and tribulations. But you won't be disappointed in him. And so, Father, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you've done all for us. Lord, we pray for those, Lord, who are not maybe sure of their relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the simplicity of the gospel. That Jesus came. He died for our sin according to scripture. That he was buried and he rose again. As the scripture foretold. Father we thank you that you did that for us. Father we pray for those who haven't come to know you as savior. That you would help them to trust. That they would be sealed by the spirit. And Father, for those of us who have believed, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in our assurance of our relationship with Christ. Father, we thank you that your word says that if we trust in him, we won't be disappointed. And so, Father, we walk with you, Lord. We need your help. Guard us, Lord, from going astray. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.